Acts chapter 14. We'll be finishing this chapter today, looking at verses 19 to verse 28. Acts 14, 19 through 28. If you would, church family, stand with me as we read God's word together. Chapter 14, verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went out, we went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of heaven. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, they prayed and fasting, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Verse 24, Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Atalia, And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how they had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for this privilege again that we have, once again, to gather together as a family around your word, to study it, to learn from it, to be instructed by it. Lord, I pray that that is exactly what would be accomplished here today. Despite the weakness of the speaker and of the hearers, Lord, we ask that you would move today to instruct us, to demonstrate to us your goodness, and all these things we ask in Christ's name. Amen. One of the weaknesses that I have in ministry, a weakness that I've never been too shy about expressing, not one that I'm necessarily proud of or would say it's a good thing, but if ever asked sort of what my, my, one of my many weaknesses in ministry is, I would say that it has to be vision casting. This concept of of sort of seeing into the future and, and not being able to predict it, but hopefully being able to see how we ought to move as a church, what direction uh, we ought to be moving as a, as a congregation, what ministries ought to be grown and fostered in a specific way, how to, to instruct and, and enlighten in specific ways. It's kind of a, a sort of popular thing among church planting strategies, church growth strategies, and and is certainly a, a good and, and right endeavor to come up with, with a plan, with a vision for the church. But for me, whenever I've been asked of a question of what's your vision for the church or, or something like where do you see the church in five years or what's your five-year or 10-year plan, it's somewhat frustrating to me because oftentimes my response is, I hope in five years, in 10 years, to be preaching the gospel to the congregation the same way I am now, just with five years more experience or 10 years more experience. I really have a difficult time with with seeing 
and creating and, and casting a vision for the church. Frankly, that's not even how I live my life. I have a hard time casting a vision for, for my own future next year. Just earlier today, I was talking with Robert, and he says, so what does your week look like in front of you? And I said, man, I have no idea. I said, I have an agenda for this week. I know I do, but I don't know what it is. Very much, that's the way I, I live my life. I think as many of us do, sort of in the moment, what does today have in front of me? Not what does this month or year, or for many of us, like myself, this week have in front of me. But one of the good things, I think, for us, and I think for myself, as I struggle in this area of being able to have a vision for the church, having five-year plans, having a, a, a vision for certain ministries of the church, the helpful thing for us is that if, if we turn to the scriptures, if we remain committed to the Bible, we will be given all of these things that we need. We might not be given specifics of exactly what, uh, what programs to purchase software-wise or, or what uh, paint to put on the wall or, or anything like that, but what we will be given, as we are given today, is a picture of what ministry ought to look like. In a sense, we have a glimpse here today of what Paul's vision of gospel missions is and what it ought to be. And we see it because we get to see him doing it. How does Paul go about missions and the work of missions? That's what we get to see today. And my hope and my desire is today, as we see Paul, the Apostle Paul, completing this first missionary journey, that we would see from these passages, from these verses, sort of pieces of his vision, aspects of what he thinks matters and is important for gospel missions. And I'm going to point out for us today three aspects of Paul's ministry and his vision for ministry in these verses. The first one that we're going to look at is determination and endurance. The second is doctrine and ecclesiology. The third is sharing and celebration. Determination and endurance, doctrine and ecclesiology, and sharing and celebration. That's what we see pictured here as Paul concludes his first missionary journey. And so I want us to look at each one of these things and consider them as we see them on display before us here in the book of Acts in hopes that we as a church might see the vision and might absorb the vision and, and, and put into practice these very things that Paul was practicing on the mission field. So let's consider each one of these things that we have before us. In verses 19 through 21, we see, which is point number one, determination and endurance on display. These aspects of Paul's ministry. Not just Paul, Paul and Barnabas. Sometimes we forget about poor Barnabas. I know I do. He's just so quiet in the text and it's hard to, hard to remember. But we see from Paul and Barnabas in verses 19 through 21, this instance where the first thing we have introduced to us in these verses now before us is that he gets stoned. Now, if you were here last week, you know sort of where this came from. This didn't come out of a vacuum. As Paul's been traveling around on his missionary journey, he's been making disciples. They've been preaching the gospel and seeing people come to faith. But in addition to seeing people come to faith, what else have they seen? They've seen a great deal of hostility, a great deal of persecution. They've been driven out of various towns and cities as they preach the gospel. What we see in verse 19 then it says that when the Jews came, or, but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. 
Antioch and Iconium are the last two places that Paul has been preaching the gospel. Not Antioch, the place where he started. Remember, there's, there's multiple Antiochs in this time and in this region. Specifically, Pisidian Antioch, where Paul preached the gospel. And ultimately, it was rejected. It was disdained. It was hated. The word of God was trampled upon by, by the people there. And so what did Paul and Barnabas do? They shook the dust from their feet and moved on. And they went on to Iconium, where they preached the gospel and saw converts. But again, saw a great amount of persecution to where they actually had to flee for their lives once again. But what we see happening, which is kind of crazy, is that the Jews who were after Paul in this, in this missionary journey, as he was making these enemies every stop, they didn't just kick him out of their town and then say, all right, phew, he's gone, we can relax now, forget about him. No, in fact, what the text tells us is that they literally were following Paul. They were pursuing Paul with the intention of stopping his mission, with the intention of persecuting him. The Jews were so frustrated and angry because of the the gospel that he and Barnabas were preaching that they traveled all the way from Pisidian Antioch in order to persecute him. That's nearly 100 miles that these people have traveled for the purpose of putting an end to Paul and Barnabas. That's commitment to a cause, isn't it? It's commitment to a cause that if you think about it, probably looks somewhat familiar to Paul, didn't it? In a very real sense, Paul was now on the opposite side of the coin from where he was before he was saved. Before his road to Damascus moment where the Lord opened his eyes, what was Paul doing? And how different was it from what these people were doing? Paul who was formerly known as Saul, was persecuting the church aggressively from town to town, from place to place, killing and imprisoning the Christians, those who would proclaim and believe the gospel. Now he was experiencing the exact same thing from the Jews as he was preaching the gospel. These persecutors traveled from Antioch and Iconium, and once they get to Lystra, they they convince the very same people who were about to offer sacrifices to Paul to now murder him. This just sort of shows how much the gospel is foolishness. It is folly to those who are blind, to those who are perishing. Because literally, just last week, even in the very first, before 19 and 18, what do we read? Even with these words, these words as they were proclaiming the gospel to the people in Lystra, they were scarcely restrained from offering sacrifice to them. The people were convinced that Paul and Barnabas were these Roman gods, these Greek mythological gods who had come down to visit them as they were seeing their signs and their miracles, the wonders being done by the Lord, by the hands of Paul and Barnabas. And Paul and Barnabas put a stop to it. They say, no, 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 no. We are men like you with natures like you. And they put a stop to the worship and they have to do everything they can to keep them from sacrificing. These very same people, who were just about to offer sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas, are now worked up into a lather and ready to murder them. Truly, the gospel is folly to those who are perishing. It was the humility of Paul and Barnabas to reject their worship that these people saw and for some reason were put off by. Presumably, they would have been happy to let them remain and stay and continue worshiping them as gods. 
but because Paul and Barnabas were committed not to taking glory for themselves, but to giving it all to the Lord to whom they served, they were hated and they were despised by these people. And so they take Paul. Again, I don't know why Barnabas gets left out of this, but he does. They take Paul, the the mouthpiece, the one who was preaching and proclaiming the gospel so boldly, and they brutally stone him to the point that they're confident he is toast. And then they drag him out of town. This part of the story brings me to a certain conclusion. This picture that we have here before us of Paul, who after being stoned, and let me remind you, this is not just like people picking up little pebbles and and throwing them at you the way you would throw it at a girlfriend's window. The, The practice of stoning was the chosen method by God in the Old Testament to kill people. It was a method of execution. It was not just a way to punish someone. It was not just a way to annoy them or teach them a lesson. It was a means of destruction of their life. Let's not be confused by that, that what they did to Paul was a form of execution. Throwing rocks at him, beating him down with rocks until they were sure he was dead and they dragged him out of town. But then what did Paul do? In verse 20, but when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and entered the city. Paul, after being stoned nearly to death, jumps right back up and goes right back into the city. So the conclusion I've drawn from this is that the apostle Paul would have made a terrible, terrible soccer player. If you watch soccer, as I do not, you'll know that that what these players do, it's kind of a part of the game now. It's a given. They get like nudged by someone's shoulder or like flicked by hair and it's, oh, oh, they roll around on the ground and oh, come on, ref, where's the card? Oh, man. It's like a part of the game now. But all of a sudden, a couple minutes later, once they feel like they've accomplished what they needed to do, got their message across that they're just seriously, terribly hurt, right back up and at it again, running full speed. The, uh, the, the art of the flop, which is unfortunately also, I think, infiltrated basketball to a certain degree, is something totally foreign to Paul. The idea of milking it means nothing to the Apostle Paul. In fact, if anyone had a right to kind of say, you know what, I think I'm going to take a minute. Wouldn't it be Paul? He just got stoned. The, the Jewish form of execution was just put in practice against Paul. And he jumps up brushes himself off, and goes right back into the city. This is the epitome, I think, of what Paul says himself in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 4-7, through where he says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not not forsaken, Struck down, but not destroyed. Not only does Paul get back up, but he gets back up and goes right back to work, never missing a beat. He doesn't take time off, but heads out the very next day after getting back up, entering the city that he was just kicked out of by way of stoning. And then the very next day gets right back on his feet, 
right back on the mission field to go and see their mission through. What an example Paul is for us of endurance, of perseverance, of determination. What a great example he is for us. After being stoned, gets right back up and gets right back to work. How is it that he could just get right back to it and not ever seemingly think about giving up? Now, I'm sure those thoughts entered Paul's head. I'm sure he had moments where he thought, man, it sure would be easier for me to call it quits right now. And no one would blame me. And no one would have. No one would have held it against Paul, the guy who just got stoned, if he would have said, you know what? I think I'm done for now. I think I'm going to take a break. Everyone would have said, yeah, I understand. But he doesn't. What is it that motivates him? Well, it's probably in part due to the fact that he knew it was coming. He knew this kind of persecution was coming. Indeed, back in chapter 9, the Lord showed him this through Ananias. In chapter 9, verse 16, where the text tells us that Ananias, by the, by the will of the Lord, showed him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Certainly, this would have been a help. Knowing ahead of time, this is what's coming for, he, for me. I'm not surprised by it. But it's hard not to see this act, this moment where Paul was stoned, again, a form of execution. It's hard not to see this moment as a miraculous work of God's grace. To not only see Paul surviving the stoning, but being able to get back up and go right back to the work that he was about. The Lord was miraculously sustaining and guarding his servants by his grace as they accomplished his will, seeing to it that they endured and they persevered to the end. So for the first aspect of Paul's vision of gospel mission, we see determination and endurance and the necessity thereof. But we also see point number two, the importance of doctrine and ecclesiology. This word ecclesiology, meaning, meaning church structure, meaning order of the church, polity, these kinds of things, how the church is structured. For Paul and Barnabas, missions meant planting churches. Perhaps a different picture than what we oftentimes think of when we think of missions. Oftentimes, in our minds, missions is something detached from the local church. Both are important, but they're not necessarily something that goes together. But in Paul's model of missions and his vision for gospel missions, church planting is an essential part of missions. Paul and Barnabas, as they are going about preaching the gospel, they're not only preaching the gospel, but they are establishing churches. In verses 22 and 23, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of heaven. And then verse 23, when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Paul and Barnabas give the churches two things in this very difficult time in order to equip them. The first thing that they give to the churches in order to equip them, in order to strengthen them, is sound doctrine. Paul explains to the church who I am sure had many questions at this point, that the suffering that he had gone through and that he was going to continue to go through 
is all a part of God's sovereign will and decree. It's a part of his plan and his purposes that they should suffer. And this is a comfort to them. It encourages them to look past the suffering to a God who loves and cares and is in control of all of it. Not only that, to look past the suffering to what is to come afterwards. You see, so often when we, when we begin to be discouraged, when we begin to be brought down by our situation, it's because our eyes are fixed firmly where? On our situation, on the suffering, on the tribulation, on the difficulties. But where is it that our comfort, that our hope, that our joy is found? Not in the difficulties that we see around us. And certainly, we face difficulties. We face persecution. But church family, where does the Apostle Paul encourage the churches to set and fix their eyes in order to maintain perseverance, in order to be encouraged, in order to be comforted, even in the midst of tribulation? He encourages them to fix their eyes past the suffering on what is to come by the gospel of Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God. Indeed, all will face tribulation and face suffering in order to enter into the kingdom of God. That's what he tells them. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. But we know that these tribulations are only now. They are only for a moment, as the song we just sang, eternal weight of glory. That verse comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, or 15 and 16, which says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen for the things that are seen are transient meaning they are right now they are temporary but the things that are unseen are eternal he says this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison the Apostle Paul, who, let me remind you, was just stoned nearly to death, who faced shipwreck and whippings and beatings and all sorts of other tribulation, takes the culmination of all of that. And here in his letter to the Corinthian church, 2 Corinthians, one of the greatest books to encourage a church in their suffering, he takes all of these things that he has experienced and what does he say about them? They are light and they are momentary afflictions. Paul here uses the language of, of weights in order to demonstrate the greatness of our hope against the temporary pain that we experience now. He encourages us to take the scales and see which outweighs the other. Is it our tribulation? Is it our affliction? Is it the suffering that we feel now? Let's take that and let's put it on the scale next to the eternal weight of glory that is ours in Christ Jesus. And what conclusion do we come through every time? The same as Paul. I consider that our present suffering is not even worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. When we put all the suffering, all the tribulation that we experience on this earth, on the scale, and then on the other side set the weight of glory that is ours in Christ Jesus, immediately it drops and maxes out. Compared to what the Lord is going to 
to bless us with compared to what the Lord has in store for his people in his kingdom, whatever we face on this earth is light and momentary. Feel like giving up? Feeling discouraged? Feeling like the weight that you have before you is too heavy to bear? Take it to the scales. Weigh it against what God has promised to his people. Paul encourages the churches with eschatological realities, that is, end times theology. He directs them to things which are to come for believers in order to help them endure and face adversities. So believe it or not, eschatology does matter. End times do matter. Because what we can conclude, wherever you fall on the whole end times spectrum, is that in the end, for believers, victory is ours. Joy, eternal joy, in the presence of God Almighty is ours. Whatever the case might be, this matters. Eschatology in end times matters. Doctrine matters to the church. Because right doctrine informs right action, as Ian preached a few Sunday nights ago. Not only does he give them good doctrine, but he also gives them good structure or good ecclesiology. He and Barnabas ensure that the elders are appointed in each church. They never left a church without an elder, without pastors. And there's two important things I want us to note about verse 23. This really important verse with regards to church polity, with regards to ecclesiology, with regards to structure of the church. And the first thing I want us to note is that where there were churches, they had pastors. There was really no concept in the New Testament of churches or a church not having a pastor, not having pastors, not having overseers, elders, teaching them, instructing them, guiding them. Now, certainly there are seasons for some churches when they might lose a pastor, whether to death or other circumstances. And for a season, they might have to be without a pastor until they can, they can find a new pastor to fill his place, to take on that mantle of leadership, of shepherding, of teaching the church. But that's not the church model, to be pastorless. The New Testament model for the church is that there should be pastors. There's an unfortunate trend that I think, thankfully, is sort of moving out a little bit, but was real popular just a few years ago of planting house churches with the claim that they were seeking to model after the church in Acts. But oftentimes what you would find from these people who were, who were pro-house church, who were, who were sort of rejecting all of the, the pomp, the circumstance, the structure found in, in the churches that they saw around them in, in an attempt to reject that, and, and maybe even from a good place to strip away all the non-essentials of what it means to be a church, one of the things that was stripped away in many of those places was any sort of ecclesiology, was any sort of understanding of church structure to the point that I would have conversations with people who were in house churches and say, what's the name of your pastor? And the answer was oftentimes, well, we don't really have one. We just kind of study God's word together. We just kind of encourage one another. And that all sounds good, and it all sounds sweet to the ears, but you want to know what else it sounds like? sounds very opposite of what the apostles were doing when they planted churches. 
that they made sure where there was a church, they had pastors. And the second thing to note about this verse and, and what it teaches us about proper ecclesiology, even in brand new churches as these were, is that they didn't just appoint an elder, but they appointed a plurality of elders, multiple elders, not just one. Here at Redeemer Fellowship Church, you maybe have, have noticed that we don't just have a pastor. We don't just have one pastor who leads the church and, and everyone kind of underneath him. We have what's called a plurality of elders, a, a group of pastors that works together to lead, to shepherd, to teach the church. And my argument, and I'm, I'm thankful for it, that we are this way, because my argument is that this is the right and appropriate model for church structure. Not only that, but from a personal note, you just heard me at the beginning of my sermon mention a weakness that I had. And let me tell you, church family, that is one of many weaknesses that I have. I am so thankful that I have men that are working alongside me to shepherd the church, to care for the church, to teach the church, so that my weaknesses, while still there, are largely helped and made up by the strength of the men around me, by their strengths. And where their weaknesses are, I can help build those up as well. Dave Harvey, a guy who wrote a book called Healthy Plurality Equals Durable Church, gives three reasons for a plurality of elders. He actually gives several more, but there were three specific that I think are good and right for us to see and to understand. In other words, we're arguing that there should be multiple elders as a team, as a group, working together to serve, lead, shepherd, teach the church. Three of the reasons that he gives are these, and I think they're helpful. One is that plurality was a prominent and essential feature of New Testament church polity. As we have already said, in the New Testament church, what you see is not that there is one guy who is the guy in charge. Rather, you see a team of elders. You see a plurality of elders in the New Testament church, almost exclusively. Second thing is that plurality embodies and expresses the New Testament principle of interdependence and the diversity of gifts among members of the body. In other words, there are some ways in which I'm gifted that Aaron and Robert are not. There are some ways that Aaron is gifted that Robert and I are not. There are some ways that Robert is gifted that Aaron and I are not. Having a plurality of leaders, of elders, means what? that the church gets to experience the giftings and the strengths and the good things of all the elders together. Which then the flip side, as I've already addressed, is that plurality acknowledges human limitation. That any one man on his own is far less effective than a team of godly elders, pastors, leading and directing the church. As the Apostle Paul finished his missionary, missionary journey, he leaves the churches with what they needed most. Again, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of tribulation, he leaves them with good doctrine and good leadership. Notice that he doesn't leave them with a list of, of important programs that they need to implement if they want to be effective as a church, if they want to have good outreach. He doesn't leave them with, with nice big buildings in order for them to effectively minister in their community. He leaves them with what they need, and it's the same thing that churches still need today, solid elders and pastors who can lead and teach 
and shepherds God, shepherd God's people in right doctrine and teaching. So that's point number two, the second thing that we see from the Apostle Paul's vision of gospel missions. And the third thing, finally and shortly, we see in verses 27 through 28, as Paul concludes this mission, we see this. And when they arrived and gathered together the church, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. Here at the conclusion of this missionary journey, what does Paul do as he gets back to his home church, his sending church? As they take time to sit down and to declare to the people all that God had done. To celebrate the wonders and the ways in which God had opened the door to the Gentiles and the gospel was now being proclaimed and believed all across Galatia. They were celebrating the first steps towards the church and the gospel spreading to the ends of the earth. This beautiful picture of what they do when they get back to the sending church of recalling the ways in which the kingdom of God was advanced. Not recalling the ways and and celebrating the ways Paul and Barnabas did amazing things. But how does Luke tell us in verse 27? He says they declared all that God had done with them. All that God had done. Again, let me remind you, the book we're studying right now is, is called oftentimes the Acts of the Apostles. But as we see from this text right here, what should it be called? It should be called the Acts of God or the Acts of the Holy Spirit as these men are being used by God for the sake of the gospel. And so they get back to the church and they share, they celebrate, they rejoice in what God is doing. Same thing that we still see practice in our churches today. As Aaron and Lindsay and I, after our trip to Rome, had a chance to get up here and and celebrate and proclaim what God was doing across the globe. When people get back from missionary journeys, from time on the mission field, what do we want? We want to hear, what is God doing there? How is God working? How is the gospel being spread? How is the kingdom of God growing there? And we rejoice in that. We rejoice in hearing and seeing the ways in which God is working in this world. The Christian life is a difficult one. And you can be sure, if you desire to follow Christ, you will face difficulty, you will face persecution, you will face tribulation. And like Paul, we need to be aware of that. And we need to make others aware of it as well. I think it is unfortunate that oftentimes, even in our evangelism, we sort of like, backload the conversation about tribulation and persecution and difficulties. And oftentimes when we do that, when we sort of move that to the fine print of the gospel, saying, hey, accept Christ Jesus, be filled with joy and peace and love and all these good things, and all of those things are good and are true. But when Paul came to faith in Christ, you want to know what was front-loaded for him? persecution. The Lord sent Ananias and proclaimed to Paul, guess what, bud? Here's all the ways you're going to suffer. Unfortunately, we backload the conversation about persecution and tribulation and suffering. And often what that leads to is people falling into great despair when it comes. 
the reason we need to be telling people about the persecution that will come, about tribulation that will come, is not so that they'll be fearful or so that we will turn to our own resolve or our own strength in order to maintain ourselves when difficulties and and tribulation come. The reason we need to be reminded of the reality of the difficulties and tribulation that will come with following Christ is so that we will rely all the more on his grace. The only way we will stand is by the grace of God. In fact, Paul's vision for gospel missions that we looked at today is entirely rooted in God's grace. So that the points that we've already walked through and looked at could be understood this way. We need determination and endurance that can only come by the grace of God. We teach doctrine and practice ecclesiology in a way that is formed by and rooted in the grace of God. We rejoice and we share and we celebrate what God has done, not what man has done. Every step of the way, it's his grace that supplies, that empowers, that informs the work that his church is to be about. So when you see Paul being stoned and getting back up and going into the city, you might think, like I'm prone to think, I could never do that. I don't have that in me. That kind of resolve, that kind of determination, that kind of grit. And to be stoned and then to get back up and get right back to work. I don't have it in me. And as many of you hear me saying that, you already are saying it in your head. Yes, you're correct. You don't have it in you. Neither did Paul in and of himself. What Paul did, his endurance, his determination didn't come from inside himself. It was supplied by God's grace. When you see the churches established in doctrine and in their their church structure, and you think that all sounds over my head, that sounds like something I might screw up if I were in those churches, if I were a part of that practice. But remember what Paul himself says. He said to me, speaking of the Lord, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your Weakness, therefore, he says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. The church is filled with weak people. People who, apart from God's grace, will fail. But God has given us his grace. He has supplied it to us and he will sustain us with it. When you feel that there is little to rejoice over in this world, sit for just a moment. And recall how his grace has saved you from the wrath that you deserve. How it has nourished you in your life. Not only that, consider how his grace has sustained his people throughout all of redemptive history. And how by his grace, his kingdom is being spread across the globe. None of us gets credit for that. No man, no institution of man, but God himself alone gets the credit, gets the glory for the work of his grace, extending the gospel across the world. All of these things are products of God's grace, not man's strength. And the more we see that clearly, the more we will see clearly his grace, the more we'll enjoy his grace and experience his grace in us today.